like to welcome you and like to thank Dr. Craig Simone for being here. He's going to speak on his latest book, Neptune, The Ally Invasion of Europe and D-Day Landings. Um, Craig, Dr. Craig, I can call him, is one of the foremost naval historians and writings today. And Neptune continues in the vein of his highly acclaimed Battle of Norway. And again, we would like to thank um, Craig for coming back um, and sharing with us his latest book, Neptune. Craig. Thank you, everybody, uh, for coming out this evening. Even though the Orioles are in town, I had to snake my way through the, uh, the city streets, avoiding the traffic as much as possible to get here. Three weeks ago um, on the National Mall, I participated in observation of the 70th anniversary of the D-Day landings. Um, you say, well, there's a 10th and a 20th and a 30th. Why is the 70th so noteworthy? And I think the reason is because 70 is, by biblical tradition at least, a lifespan. So that the young men, 19, 20, 21, who participated in that invasion on June 6, 1944, are now 90, 91, 92, and this is probably the last uh, observation of that anniversary that ends in a zero, that we will have them around. And so I'm glad we're paying attention. Uh, it was a very meaningful event, uh, certainly for me. I, I hope it was for them. Almost every American... Uh, despite our historical ignorance generally as a society, is aware of a couple of events from World War II, Pearl Harbor, certainly. Um, and D-Day, I think, is another. Um, Steven Spielberg perhaps contributed to that with the first 20 minutes of his film, Saving Private Ryan, which are absolutely gut-wrenching if you haven't seen it. Uh, it. It's difficult to watch. I think it's one of the most accurate portrayals that I have ever seen in film of what combat is actually like, the chaos, the, the horror, and so forth. But like almost every historical event, it has a long backstory, and it's really that backstory I want to share with you tonight. I want to talk about how this moment came to be before anything can happen, before that first landing craft pushes up onto the sand, before the first soldier steps out to face that machine gun fire, a lot has to happen. And among those are the decision-making that we're going to do this, uh, deciding when we're going to do it and where we're going to do it and how we're going to do it. Secondly, there's the whole problem of gathering together the wherewithal to make it possible, the logistical issue, the tanks, the planes, the bullets, the bombs, and most especially the ships necessary first to transfer two million men across an, o an ocean to Britain, and then across the channel to German-occupied France. And then finally, of course, there is the one we observed three weeks ago, the operational aspect where those men came ashore. And I want to talk about all three of those today. So um, the story of D-Day that I want to tell today really falls naturally into those three parts, the strategic argument, the logistic process, and then the operational landing. I'm going to try and run through it in exactly that order. Um, and I'll start with a photograph. Let's see if I can make this work now. Well, strike one. <laughs> I 
it went to sleep on us. There it is. I really like this photograph. It looks uh, pretty quiet, but in fact, there's an awful lot going on here. Uh, you know these two guys in front. That's, of course, FDR on the left, uh, smiling that famous campaign smile. Um, FDR um, supported Britain from the very beginning of the war in September of 1939. Uh, and he did it not just with words and speeches and enthusiasm and attaboys. He, he did it with supplies and equipment, stretching the legal meaning of neutrality and arguably even the Constitution to make sure that the British could hold out against the Nazis. And he did all that at great political risk. Politics, obviously very important to FDR, one of our most quintessential politicians. Because American isolationists, probably still in the majority in 1939 when the war began, including popular spokesmen like Charles Lindbergh, uh, most clerics, perhaps, from the pulpit, obviously overwhelming number of Republicans, and even Roosevelt's own ambassador to Britain, Joseph P. Kennedy, father of the future president, all opposed him on this, all said, this is a bad idea, do not do this, do not provide that material support not only because it may be a violation of law, but also because most of them believe that Britain was probably going to lose this thing. And if you send all this equipment over there across the ocean, it's going to end up in the hands of the Nazis anyway. But Roosevelt bet that Britain would hold out, and he was determined to do all that he could to make sure that happened. He convinced a majority of Americans, mostly through those famous fireside chats, that British survival was essential to American security, that by providing the, the tools of war to the British, we were saving not only our own security, but American lives in doing so. And he got his way on most of these issues, including, crucially, Lend-Lease, which was the program that allowed Britain to survive through those bitter years of 1940 and 1941. Now, to FDR's left, that is to the right, as you look at this picture on the screen, that of course is Winston Spencer Churchill. Also fully recognizable in his puckish expression there. The gravel-voiced survivor of a thousand parliamentary debates and the determined foe of what he always called nauseism, as if the root word for Nazi was nausea. Churchill was grateful for the support that Roosevelt sent, but what he really wanted, of course, was American belligerency, American participation in the war. And consequently, throughout the period of American neutrality, that is from 1939 to 1941, and even during the first several years of American involvement in the war up till 1943 and probably into 1944, Churchill was the supplicant in this relationship. He was the one coming to Roosevelt, as he does here, metaphorically at least, hat in hand, to ask for as much as America could provide, and then maybe a little bit more, and eventually, of course, American participation in the war. Roosevelt was the one being wooed. This photograph, by the way, was taken in August of 1941, August 11th, so that's still three, four months before Pearl Harbor. The United States is a neutral nation when this took place. It's interesting that Churchill has come to see Roosevelt 
They're actually on board a battleship, a British battleship, uh, the Prince of Wales, anchored in a bay on the south coast of Newfoundland. Um, just as an aside, that battleship, though of course no one in this photograph knew it at the time, was destined to be sunk almost exactly four months later on the 10th of December off the coast of Malaya by Japanese aircraft stage out of French Indochina. But to arrange this meeting uh, with a, the head of government of a belligerent power in the midst of war, Roosevelt had to sneak away from the capital um, keeping his movements a secret, not only from the public and the press and all of that, but even from the Secret Service. I was trying to imagine if a president in these days could fool the Secret Service and go off for a month at a time, and you imagine the Secret Service would run around going berserk, unaware of where the president was. At the time of this meeting, Roosevelt was still in the mindset that the United States could be what he liked to call the arsenal of democracy, providing the materiel of war, um, so that Britain and her Commonwealth partners, Canada, of course, Australia, New Zealand, could not only hold out against the uh, Wehrmacht, the Hitler's juggernaut, but maybe even win the war. Uh, and that hope became much more likely after June of 1941, when Hitler stupidly invaded the Soviet Union before making sure that Britain had in fact been defeated. So that as these two men are talking in August of 1941, the hope, certainly in FDR's mind, is that with American money, Russian blood, and British grit, Hitler might yet be defeated without the United States having to go to war. <coughs> of course, the strategic landscape changed dramatically uh, a few months later after Pearl Harbor. Uh, Churchill was thrilled to have the United States at last in the war as a full ally, um, but he feared that given the character of the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, it was at least possible that the United States would turn most of its attention to the Pacific. The public was clamoring for revenge against this perceived dastardly sneak attack on a Sunday morning, and the pressure was building, political pressure was building on Roosevelt to commit forces to the Pacific War. Churchill was terrified, that's exactly what Roosevelt was going to do, but in fact he need not have worried, at least about that, because between the time this photo was taken and the attack on Pearl Harbor, American defense policy and strategy had undergone a complete reversal. That policy came from a fellow who's also in this photograph. If you look to the right side of the screen there, you'll see a man standing uh, with many stripes on his sleeve. Can we see him? Yeah, there he is. Uh, just the second one in from the right-hand side of the screen. Um, that's Admiral Harold Stark, the Chief of Naval Operations, who had put together a plan, a series of alternatives, what we might have to do if war found us. And the preferred alternative he suggested, which was then subsequently adopted, was that Germany, being by far the more dangerous enemy, should the United States get into war, that Germany must be defeated first before the United States turned its attention to Japan. And, though the pressure was enormous, Roosevelt resisted the pressure to go to the Pacific and stuck to this Germany-first strategy. I'll mention just in passing, Harold Stark, uh, like many midshipmen who went through the Naval Academy, uh, got a nickname uh, in his plebe year. It was a little bit less common now than it used to be. It was almost a requirement in those days 
to have a kind of a quirky nickname. Uh, his came about because he was uh, standing in formation one day and an upperclassman walked up to him and saw his name tag on his shirt and asked him if he were related to General Stark from the American Revolution. He said, well, sir, I don't know who General Stark is. Well, that was not the right answer to give to an upperclassman. And he gave him a blistering lecture that was more or less correct about the fact that at the Battle of Bennington, Ger General Stark had said, we will win today or Betty Stark will be a widow. And uh, Harold Stark was ordered to bellow out that phrase to every upperclassman every time he passed him in the yard. So, of course, his nickname became Betty. And if you look in the archives, his memos, even to the President of the United States, are all signed Betty. So it was a nickname that stuck with him all through life. The irony of this, of course, is that the upperclassmen had his history wrong. At the Battle of Bennington, what John Stark said was, we will win tonight or Molly Stark will be a widow. His wife's name was, in fact, Molly. Um, and Betty does seem like an odd nickname, but I will tell one quick story before I resume uh, the tale I really want to tell. One of my early jobs in the Navy, when I was a flag lieutenant for the president of the Naval War College, he used to write letters to all his classmates. He was from the class of 1910 or 12 or something like that, very ancient gentleman. And I would type out his letters for him, and, you know, dear Admiral so-and-so, and he would take his pen and cross that off and write, dear Stinky, or whatever it happened to be. So that was a tradition that was very common. Anyway, Betty Stark is the guy who decided Germany first would be the strategy of the United States in the Second World War. On the other hand, Churchill was a bit uh, nonplussed to learn that, uh, yes, Germany first, but the American attitude was, well, if Germany is going to be first, let's get to it right now. Let's go. What are you doing tomorrow morning? I mean, Americans are not a particularly patient people about almost anything. And if we're going to go to war against Germany first, I think the time to do that is right now. Well, the British, you know, don't want to pour cold water on such enthusiasm. But on the other hand, they want to be a little bit realistic. Their answer was something like, well, that's a fine idea, right? Oh, good chap. We really are all on board about that. But we do have to be practical about these things. The British preference, and here I'm, I speak specifically of Churchill. Churchill's vision was that Hitler's European empire... Uh, had numbers of subject peoples in it that were certainly unhappy about that, and, and given the proper encouragement, might rise up and make it difficult for Hitler to hang on to his empire. So if we, the Allies, bomb them regularly from the air, attack them peripherally from the outside over and over again, and kind of just let the, the Russians kill a couple hundred thousand of them every month, uh, eventually that empire will become so precarious that we can just kick in the door, go ashore, and take over. Entirely different from the American point of view. It's not that the British didn't want to go. They just don't want to go yet. But the Americans want to go immediately. The principal advocate of an early allied landing in German-occupied France came from the Army Chief of Staff, General George C. Marshall. He's in this picture, too. That's him sort of behind... Winston Churchill over Churchill's right shoulder, the taller of the two gentlemen with the gray hat. Um, he's talking to the uh, uh, fellow who's 
name is Ernest J. King, uh, whose title is Comanche, Commander-in-Chief, United States Navy. Um, King, for his part, was a little bit skeptical of this Germany first business. Not officially, of course. He's a lifetime professional. He's going to follow orders. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, but King was also determined to make sure that the Japanese never had an opportunity to consolidate the conquests that they'd made in the Western Pacific in the first six months of the war. I mean, they controlled an empire that's practically a quarter of the globe. And if you give them time to dig in, uh, resting that back from them later would be very difficult. So he was always eager to go sooner rather than later into Japanese-controlled Western Pacific. So what Marshall discovered was that he had to convince not only the British, but also the U.S. Navy that this was a good idea. I want you to look, too, at the fellow just to Marshall's left, that is, between Marshall and Betty Stark. Um, he's looking somewhat suspiciously at the conversation that Marshall and King are having. That is British General Sir John Dill. Uh, Churchill brought Dill with him. Dill's title was Chief of the Imperial General Staff. He was about to be replaced by Sir Alan Brooke, who would be in that job for most of the war. But Dill is the guy that Churchill brought with him, and he left him behind in Washington after December of 1941 to become part of the combined Chiefs of Staff. And I think Dill, along with George Marshall, is one of the underappreciated strategic uh, leaders of uh, the entire Second World War. Uh, he was able to smooth over the rough patches between the British and the Americans. He would go back to Churchill and say, no, you can't get your way on that. The Americans won't accept it. And he could tell the Americans, you're going to have to compromise on your end. He was one of the guys who could make things happen by making sure people each gave a little bit on their end. Alas, Dill did not live to see the outcome of his efforts. He died in 1944, and he's one of only about four non-Americans ever to be buried at Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. Now, not pictured in this photograph are the Russians, who, at this time, August 1941, were bearing literally the full weight of the war against Germany on a thousand-mile front. Millions of men were killing one another at the rate of 10,000 or more per week. Um, and they were positively frantic for the Western allies to open a second front. So they're with the Americans on this. Sooner is better than later. Stalin suspected that Churchill's reluctance derived from Churchill's determination that he would fight the Germans to the very last Russian. And he might have been right about that. Churchill might have expressed it differently. He might have said, I'm willing to fight the Nazis to the very last communist. But in either case, it's the same result. Now, before I leave this slide, move on to the rest of the story. There are two more characters I want to point out. They are the two on the very left of the photograph, talking to one another, a little private conversation going on. The fellow with a ha his hands behind his back, that's Harry Hopkins. Hopkins was as important in holding together the Anglo-American coalition as Dill, maybe even more so. He was Roosevelt's most trusted senior advisor, lived in the White House, went to all of the meals, uh, saw Roosevelt more than any other living person, including Eleanor. 
Um, he was a cancer survivor. Uh, most of his stomach had been cut out, about half of his large intestines. He could not process food properly. He was exhausted most of the time, and that did not keep him from working 20-hour days regularly. Roosevelt exploited him horribly, sending him on these long transatlantic missions, and a transatlantic flight in those days was no picnic. If you think you're suffering now by getting only a bag of peanuts and a Diet Coke, uh, it's a lot tougher in 1940-41-42. He weighed just over 100 pounds, and uh, the war and his workload almost certainly killed him. He at least lived to see the end of it. He died in January of 1946 at the age of 55. Now the handsome fellow who's whispering in Hopkins' ear, that's Averill Harriman, who Roosevelt had sent over to London to coordinate lend-lease assistance for the British. Churchill may or may not have known it. It's not clear. Churchill may have known and just kept his mouth shut, but Harriman was having an absolutely torrid love affair with Churchill's 27-year-old daughter-in-law, who was married to Churchill's only son, Randolph, serving with the British Army in Egypt. Many decades later, after everyone else in this photograph was dead, the 81-year-old Averill Harriman and the 50-year-old Pamela would marry. And a couple of decades after that, Pamela Harriman became United States Ambassador to Paris. So that completes that story. So there's our cast of characters in the strategic-making issue. Um, and the issue that they had to deal with was, was not whether to invade. That was clear from the beginning. Europe could not be wrested from Nazi control without at some point making that invasion of northern France. And it wasn't even about where. I know there was a lot of give and take about, oh, the Pas de Calais versus Normandy and this and that. That's very much secondary. It's going to be in northern France. It's going to be under the umbrella of Allied air cover from Britain. That's very clear. The question is, when? When are we going to do this? It was Marshall who provided the first uh, plan, written plan, for an invasion, an allied invasion of, of Europe for May, May 1st, in fact, of 1943, a year and a month before it actually took place. The British expressed general, if somewhat muted, support for this. Oh, good idea, right oh, we'll do that. Let's make a plan and form a committee and so forth. But this is 16 months away. The British know a lot can happen in 16 months, and, and they, can give, they can say yes now and, and find reasons why no is a better answer later on. Um, the more immediate issue is this. If we're going to invade Europe in 16 months, what are we going to do during those 16 months? We're not just going to sit around and wait and let the Russians die like flies on the Eastern Front. We have to do something. The political pressure at home, particularly in the United States, was to do something. Ernie King says, well, we could always go to the Pacific. You know, we could do that. Roosevelt knew once you go down that path, though, that creates kind of a vortex, a black hole, a magnet for supplies, reinforcements, equipment, No, if we're going to do Germany first, we've got to go somewhere in Europe, and we've got to do it this year because the public demands it, and if we can't go into northern France, we have to find someplace else that we can go. Well, where could that be? Unsurprisingly, Churchill has an idea. He always has an idea. Unfortunately, his technology was better than mine, too. Let's see if this, 
It's not, is it receiving, not pointing at me? Is that the problem? Uh-oh, it pulled the plug out. That's not good. See, I had this very deft, clever maneuver. We were going to write into it. Undone by technology again. I'll try it again. Whoops. I'm going to try it. Well, I've got one here if I can, if I can advance it. No, nope. not happening. See, it's not just me. There it goes. Okay, bam. I'll really hit it. Churchill's notion is we'll go to North Africa. Now, Marshall thought this was a terrible idea. I mean, keep in mind, in North Africa, this is French North Africa. This is Morocco and Algeria. Not Spanish Morocco. Spain is neutral. We're not going in there. So Morocco on the left-hand side of the map, Algeria in the middle, both belong to Vichy France, technically a neutral country in the war. There are no Germans there. None. Not one. German. But it is in more, and it's not even in Europe. It's sort of next to Europe. But it's what we can do. And that was the basis of Churchill's argument. There is nothing else we can do but this. Marshall's fear was, well, yes, okay, we could get ashore, and this will do what Churchill called closing the rings, surrounding Nazi-occupied Europe with hostile territory. I guess there's some advantage to that, certainly. There, was, there were Germans in Tunisia over there, and certainly in Libya. They were fighting in Egypt against the British Eighth Army, but in French North Africa, no Germans. But Marshall said, you know, once you do that, once you commit yourself to the Mediterranean, it will create the same kind of problem you would have had in the Pacific. That is, there's a gravitational force that draws in reinforcements and supplies until even a May 1943 invasion is going to become unlikely, if not, in fact, impossible. And he was right. North Africa led to Tunisia, Tunisia led to Sicily, Sicily led to Italy, and by now, of course, it becomes evident that a landing in northern France in 1943 is going to be impossible, which may, in fact, been, have been exactly what Churchill had in mind all along. So Marshall had been right. But Churchill was right, too. For the extended campaign in North Africa demonstrated more clearly than any British argument could have that the Americans in particular, but the Anglo-Americans in general, were simply not ready to confront the German army in 1942 and probably not in 1943. The landings in Morocco had been haphazard. The campaign into Tunisia marked with blunders and reversals, none of them more humiliating than the defeat at Kasserine Pass in February of 1943. And all of that demonstrated just how completely unready the Americans were to take on the Wehrmacht in 1943. And besides, there was still the whole logistical problem. Deciding what you want to do and even when you want to do it is one thing, but having the wherewithal to do it is something else entirely. See, I scared it. 
Even before Pearl Harbor, the United United States had embarked on a dramatic uh, shipbuilding program. Um, In 1941 alone, the United States produced just over a million tons of shipping. And impressive as that was, in February of 1942, once the war was underway, Roosevelt challenged the United States Maritime Commission to build 8 million tons of shipping in a single year and 10 million more the year after that, 1943. These numbers, I mean, we have no frame of reference today, perhaps, for these numbers. They're absolutely staggering. The British rolled their eyes if they didn't laugh out loud. That's 18 million tons of shipping. That's absolutely impossible. That cannot be done. But somehow it did. And when it did, FDR raised the bar again. Now I want 24 million tons of shipping. I mean, it's almost as if, well, if you set this impossible goal, apparently I didn't set it high enough. So let's see what you can do. So to meet these astonishing and unprecedented shipbuilding goals, work goals, workers at shipyards like this one, this is one of 18 Henry J. Kaiser shipyards. This one happens to be in Oregon, Portland. These shipyards worked around the clock. What we see in this photograph is the swing shift workers lining up at 4 o'clock, a little before 4 o'clock, to, to replace the day shift workers who worked from 8 to 4. The swing shift workers came in and worked from 4 till midnight, and they would be replaced by the night shift workers who came in at midnight and worked till 8 o'clock in the morning under huge arc lights that lit up the whole shipyard. And this was taking place at uh, uh, two dozen or more shipyard, uh, ship, uh, ship ways at each yard and 18 yards, and that's only one company. The welding machines were never even turned off. They were simply passed from hand to hand as the shifts change. The workers here, by the way, earned 50 cents an hour for their work, uh, which for a 40-hour week, though most of them worked more than that, uh, and deducting $1.40 for old age benefits, the new Social Security program, left them with $18.60 a week. There's a sign just over the entrance But the shipbuilding program was not just a matter of manpower. Uh, It was also a matter of raw materials. The United States remained the great arsenal of democracy, but even its resources were not infinite. And one bottleneck, there were several, but one was steel plate. I mean, everything that goes to sea requires steel plate. Uh, And pressed by the demands of war, American uh, steel yards, steel mills, had turned out uh, 300% more in 1942 than it had before the war, but shipbuilding went up 1,500%. So the American War Production Board had to decide who got it. You know, everybody's competing for these resources. No ship can be built without it. There's battleships. Remember how many have been sunk in Pearl Harbor? Carriers, obviously, are needed for the Pacific. Escorts for the war battle of the Atlantic. But the two principal rivals for this scarce commodity, at least insofar as our story of the D-Day landings is concerned, are two other ship types that less often get emphasized. One is the Liberty Ship, which I'm sure you've heard of, those giant cargo vessels that kept the armies and our allies supplied and in the war. 
and another one called the landing ship tank, known by its initials as LST. The LST was kind of the ugly ducking, uh, duckling of the naval war. Um, it was, in effect, a big, empty, self-propelled box. Uh, as one sailor on board said, it was shaped like a bathtub and kind of, kind of sailed like one, too. I mean, they were very uncomfortable sailors. They uh, crashed down on the waves, even in a, in a light sea. Um, but those big, empty holds and their open weather deck could carry um, 20 Sherman tanks, 30 deuce-and-a-half, two-and-a-half-ton trucks, as many as 40 jeeps or light artillery pieces up on the weather deck, and 350 soldiers who were stacked in bunks four tiers high on the port side of the ship. Because of its flat bottom, it could steam right up onto a beach and open big cargo doors in front and deposit its cargo right out on the beach. Those tanks and trucks could drive right out onto the sand. Um, a case can be made that the LST was the most important ship of the Second World War. I know it's not very flashy. We like carriers and those greyhounds of the seas, the destroyers, but all amphibious landings in the era of armored warfare, which is what the Second World War was, absolutely required LSTs to get that armor ashore. Um, but nobody liked these ships. It, it was not happy duty. I mentioned that they were very poor sailors. Um, of all the, the first-hand accounts, the hundreds of first-hand accounts from sailors that I looked at in working on this, my favorite comes from an LST sailor who described it like this. Some ships go over the waves. Some of them go through the waves. Some go under the waves. But an LST just clubs them to death. But despite all that, LST, as I mentioned, was, was essential, and it became the industrial and logistical bottleneck of the Second World War. There are three reasons why this is so. First, as I mentioned, the LST had to compete for resources, steel plate among them, uh, with other ship types. And they also had to compete for space on the nation's scarce building ways. And because of that, most of the LSTs, all but a handful, were built inland on America's waterways. This is the Neville Shipyard on the Ohio River south of Pittsburgh. So Pittsburgh is a major shipbuilding center for the United States in the Second World War. Other centers were Evansville, Indiana, and Seneca, Illinois. And once launched, then they had to, of course, make their way all the way down the Mississippi to New Orleans, where they were fitted out and then went out to join the fleet. A second problem was that once it became obvious that a 1943 invasion was not going to happen because of our investment in the Mediterranean, well, okay. What we did then it was a conscious decision to postpone further construction of more LSTs in order to build destroyers to win the Battle of the Atlantic so that supplies could get across the ocean and we could defeat the Nazi U-boats. It probably made sense at the time, but by the time the priority was shifted back again 
to constructing LSTs, it was very nearly too late. You know, repurposing a shipyard is not like throwing a switch. You can't say, okay, stop building those and start building these. There are 30,000 component parts in every LST, and they all have to start out at the point of origination to manufacture each of these pieces in this long logistical line that leads finally to the shipyard where they're assembled and launched, so that when the decision was made in mid-spring of 1943 to shift back to LSTs, it really didn't get going full speed until March of 1944. And then, of course, there's the problem of getting them across from the United States over to Britain. They had a top speed of only about 10 knots, and they had to go in these convoys zigzagging back and forth across the ocean through seas still dangerous from Nazi U-boats, uh, so that uh, LST sailors claimed that, well, you know what LST really stands for, don't you? Large, slow target. The result of all this was, was that by the spring of 1944, there were simply not enough LSTs in Britain to ensure a margin of safety for an invasion of northern France. And then it got worse. It got worse because, obviously, those soldiers in, in Britain had to conduct exercises, had to go undergo training, figure out how to make an amphibious assault over a defended beach. There it is. This is a, a slide of a place called Slapton Sands. It's on the south coast of Britain, just west of Dartmouth, where their Naval Academy is located. And it shows American GIs running out of a Higgins boat, landing craft, onto a beach. You see the high ground, the right-hand side of the slide in the back, you can see some high ground back there. Slapton Sands is superficially similar to the ter terrain, especially of Utah Beach, but also a little bit of Omaha Beach, where these soldiers would make the actual landing. So they conducted a number of practice landings on this beach. And one of the biggest was one that was to take place on the 18th of April, 1944, called Exercise Tiger. That same night, that same April 18th, the German commander of what I suppose we would call a PT boat squadron, what the Germans call fast boats, or in German Schnellbooten, uh, went out on a routine patrol into the channel and found eight fully loaded American LSTs, each absolutely crammed, with Sherman tanks and trucks and jeeps and artillery pieces and thousands of American GIs, and fired their torpedoes. You can see the torpedo tube on the starboard side of this one, on number five. Uh, in a confused battle in pitch darkness, they sank two LSTs and nearly sank a third, which managed to struggle back into port. LST-289, you can still read the whole number on it. More than 700 Americans were killed in this training mishap, as it was called, which, as it turns out, was more than were killed in the actual landing on Utah Beach on June 6, 1944. And terrible as that was, Eisenhower was nearly as concerned about the fact that he just lost three LSTs when he 
didn't really have enough to begin with. He immediately cabled the United States, I need three more. Well, there aren't three more to be had. Can we get them from the Mediterranean? No. And even if we could, they wouldn't get there in time. You'll just have to make do. So the LST was that critical bottleneck that made the landings in northern France more precarious, perhaps, than they needed to be. I know we talk a lot about the enormity of the Allied Armada, but we had just barely enough LSTs. The traditional explanation of American success during the operational phase of the D-Day landings is that the Allied Armada was so great, the planning was so precise, the Germans were completely surprised, and we simply bowled them over. Um, That's mostly true. Uh, It was a huge armada. 6,000 ships, if you count those small Higgins boats, participated in this operation, clearly the largest naval armada ever assembled for a single purpose. Uh, The plans were very detailed, 1,100 pages, single-spaced, uh, the high command pretty much knew where every soldier and sailor was supposed to be at every minute of the whole operation. But that did not guarantee success. Anybody in here who's ever served in the military knows of the old adage that no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And that was true here. Indeed, at Omaha Beach in particular, which is the scene of that terrifying opening 15 minutes from the Spielberg film, Uh, the attackers were very nearly thrown back into the sea. The Germans had 81 machine gun nests arrayed on a crescent-shaped piece of high ground behind the beach so that there was simply no place on that beach you could move or lie or stand or sit without being under machine gun fire. Those German machine guns, by the way, fired at an almost unimaginable 200 rounds per second. If you can imagine such a thing. Soon the shoreline was littered not only with the mined obstructions, but with wrecked landing craft and dead or dying men. And at 8.30, less than two hours after the first soldier stepped ashore, the beachmaster on Omaha sent a word out to the beach to stop sending in more men. The landing has failed. This is a, a photograph taken by Robert Kappa on D-Day. There aren't many of these. I wanted to include it, a live action shot, very rare. Um, You can see where his point of view at the back of the Higgins boat, they didn't make it all the way into the beach. There are little runnels and piles of men clambered out, and then, of course, they would hit one of those deep trenches and just sink down with a 60-pound pack on his back and a 9-pound rifle in his hands and probably not come up again. Uh, It was a mess. It was a mess. And what saved it was a handful of American and British destroyers. Now, the destroyer's job uh, on D-Day was to screen that armada from the outside to prevent the Schnellbooten and the U-boats from coming in and attacking the ships. But in this emergency, all that was thrown out the window, and the destroyers were ordered to go in there and provide close-in gunfire support to the men trapped on the beach, especially on Omaha Beach. And about a dozen destroyers responded. Doing so with so much enthusiasm, a lot of the soldiers on the beach thought they were going to go aground right under the German guns. They came flying in there at 20 knots and turned uh, starboard or port to the beach and and opened fire. Uh, One soldier wrote, the destroyers just came right in there, popped over on their side, and blasted those German gun emplacements. They were so close to the beach that they were being hit by rifle fire 
from shore. In fact, the beach at Omaha shoals very gradually, and an American Graves-class destroyer draws about 13 feet of water, so calculations afterwards suggest the destroyers were operating with about two inches of water under their hulls. I don't have a, a photograph of that, obviously. All I, the best I could come up with was a slide, a drawing made by a, a Coast Guard officer uh, of the USS Doyle, one of those dozen or so destroyers, firing into the bluffs behind Omaha Beach. Bluffs a little exaggerated in height here, I think, but uh, you get the idea nonetheless. Afterward, as I mentioned, Omar Bradley himself uh, believed that these destroyers had saved the invasion. Now, none of that should take credit away from the soldiers who were on the beach, who had to endure that horrible fire, who crossed that killing ground, and then had to uh, scramble up those bluffs, often hand over hand, using rifle fire and hand grenades against Germans at the top before they finally seized the ground. But even those soldiers would be among the first to admit that this was a joint operation. And it wasn't over yet. Even... Once the beach itself was seized, it's not like everybody can have a cigarette and go home. The key to Allied success in this was maintaining the constant flood of reinforcements and supplies and, of course, ammunition ashore to sustain this momentum. On D-Day, that first landing went ashore at 6.40, but there was another landing every 15 minutes for the rest of the day. And, of course, the days are very long in June in the English Channel, almost up until midnight. And then on the 7th, and then the 8th, and the 9th, and the 12th, and the 20th, for a month, it was a constant effort to keep them supplied. And to do that, effectively, the Allies knew in advance they would need a working port. What they had in mind was the city of Cherbourg. <coughs> Cherbourg it was a, at the tip of the Continental <laughs> Peninsula, the first target of the uh, land forces once they got ashore. This is an aerial view of Cherbourg. Uh, it took, however, two weeks for the ground forces to seize Cherbourg, and the Germans, being who they were, uh, with their usual efficiency, uh, before they surrendered, managed to make sure that none of it was usable. So Cherbourg could not be used as a port for at least a month. Well, better have a backup plan just in case. And we did. And the backup plan was known as the Mulberry. This is an aerial shot, if I can get it to come up here, of uh, the British Mulberry off Aramash. The Mulberry was the code name for the artificial harbors. Uh, artificial harbors. All right, you see here, uh, these... This barrier down here in the lower left corner. Those were concrete structures called Phoenix units that had been built by the British in great secrecy uh, from Scotland all the way around to the Thames Estuary. Each of them is as big as a six-story office building. And they were towed across the channel and sunk in place to create this artificial breakwater. You see the four ships just in board of them. Those are Liberty ships bringing supplies. You see the piers running into the beach. Those are mechanical floating piers known as whales uh, that you could actually offload at the end of those and then drive along the length of them uh, to take your equipment ashore. And this was going to be the way that we overcame the logistics problem. But in fact, 
It wasn't. We often believed that this was our clever secret, but three days after it was opened, a storm on the 19th of June came roaring up the channel. I don't know what's wrong with this. And wrecked it. So that wasn't going to work. So what they had to do, the solution was to fall back on there, should have to begin with, the LSTs. Most of the supplies brought ashore between the 19th of June and the 4th of July actually came ashore this way, through LSTs coming up on the beach, offloading tanks, jeeps, trucks, supplies, food, Hershey bars, cigarettes, K-rations, and then loading up again with prisoners of war and American wounded and taking them back across the channel discharging those, taking in a new cargo, and coming back across. Some of them made a hundred round trips between the 6th of June and the 6th of July. Almost unimaginable. It takes 18 hours to cross at 10 knots. So it means they were operating virtually constantly. The one millionth soldier came ashore, when else, on the 4th of July on Omaha Beach, and three weeks after that, the Allies executed Operation Cobra, a breakout uh, from Normandy and Brittany to speed across the French countryside to Paris, which fell on the 25th of August. And the key to that success, rather remarkable success, was certainly the courage and commitment of the soldiers and the sailors who made it happen, but also the long history of compromise over strategy, the lessons learned in Africa and Sicily and Italy, the ability of American factories and shipyards to produce the tools of war in absolutely unprecedented numbers. And even then, D-Day might not have been a success at all, but for the ability and the willingness of the men on the scene to adjust to unexpected circumstances. It wasn't just the plan, detailed as it was. It was the ability of the non-coms and the JOs to adjust to the circumstances they found and to make it happen. So that's where the final tribute should go, those teenage soldiers and sailors who drove the Higgins boats and the landing craft through those beach obstructions, who crossed the beach despite that machine gun fire to gain the toehold in France that was the first step on the road to Berlin. All right, thank you. I look forward to your questions. Yes, sir. Yes, thank you for your presentation. I appreciate it very much. Uh, there's so many questions that we could ask about D-Day and the uh, invasion and what happened. Well, they're all in the book, so... Yeah, uh, there you go. They're all answered. Um, you know, uh, they talked about the weather situation over right. D-Day... And I understand that the Navy asked the Air Force, Army Air Force, to not to be very careful not to bomb the uh, beaches so close as to endanger the uh, ships coming over, and that the Army Air Force actually was ineffective in not blowing up the uh, emplacements of the Germans on the beach and providing shelter for the soldiers so that they could crater, so that they could crater in and have some protection. 
And that was a, a, basically the Air Force wasted their effort, and it was to naught. And Utah Beach was a disaster for one of the reasons, and that's one of the reasons. Is that an Air Force badge I see on your sleeve? It is. It certainly is. Um, yeah, it's, it's a complicated problem, and I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version, although, as I say, and I do, do this only not really with tongue-in-cheek, the longer version is in the book. Um, there's a difference between assaulting an island and assaulting the periphery of a continent in that if you begin a massive aerial bombardment campaign early, three weeks ahead of time, and you start blasting this beach and its protections, your enemy is going to say, I know where they're coming, and I can prepare for that. If it's an island, as it was in the Pacific, when we could spend three weeks or a month, you know, Iwo Jima was bombarded for 21 days for 24 hours a day, uh, because it's an island. The Japanese could not send any reinforcements there. They had to make that fight with what they had on the scene. That was not true at Normandy. So the decision was made at the very highest level. Eisenhower, uh, not necessarily the Navy or the Air Force, Eisenhower made the decision, look, what we have to do is we'll have a concentrated one hour of pure hell that we will just inflict on this beach, and then we'll dash ashore amidst the smoke and debris. That was a deliberate command decision worked out over months in advance. The difficulty was, and there were 450, no, 453 for Omaha Beach alone, there were 2,000 bombers committed to this operation, but they were all going to operate within a one-hour time frame. And they all had to operate on separate vectors. Five beaches, 2,000 airplanes, you know, you don't want to get in each other's way, so everybody's got a particular trajectory. And the one for Omaha Beach was perpendicular to the beach, 90-degree angle, coming in over the top of the fleet and the landing craft going ashore. And the pilots were sensitive to the fact, now, if we drop exactly on, if we're one second early, I'm going to hit those landing craft. So I'll wait five seconds. Some waited 10, some as much as 20. And the result of that was all of the bombs at Omaha Beach landed inland, well inland, well beyond the beach, well beyond the fortifications, and didn't hit any German emplacements at all. So it wasn't a Navy decision. It was a high command decision. If anybody, the Army was the one who said, don't kill our guys. Don't do that. Right? Now, at Utah, the marauders, they were high-flying liberators over Omaha. They were marauders coming in over Utah, and they came in parallel to the beach because that was their trajectory. They could fly under the liberators and at a lower, much more effective at Utah than it was at Omaha. So again, Omaha got, not only it's the worst geography, the most heavily defended, there was an extra division there that we didn't know about, and the aerial bombs missed it entirely. So yeah, that's, that's true. Sir? Is there ever any, um... Do you want to use the microphone? Can you? Yeah. Do you mind? Yeah, I'm sorry. I know they're recording this, and, and they'll hear this big silence from the audience. So yeah. How substantial was the discussion of going into someplace other than Normandy, or was it always pretty much set from early on that Normandy was going to be the place to go? Yeah, great question. Um, the decision that it would be Normandy was made even before Eisenhower was the commander. It was made actually by a fellow named Frederick Morgan and his staff, uh, known as Cossack, Chief of Staff, Supreme uh, Operational CAS. Thank you. Uh, he was British. Now, uh, Frederick Morgan was a major general, relatively low, two stars, relatively low level, and, and he had done all this planning, and he and his staff 
set up a debate. It's got to be either the Pas de Calais, which is where the channel is narrowest, only 19 miles wide, or Normandy. The advantage for Pas de Calais is you can have your aircraft over the target longer. Because the airfields in East Anglia, you can stay, you know, 45 minutes, almost to an hour before you have to go back to refuel. In Normandy, you can be there for about 15 minutes, you've got to fly back and refuel again. So the replacement schedule is, so it's harder at Normandy. But the Germans knew this too, which means that the Pas de Calais was really heavily defended. And the experience that the British and especially the Canadians had had in the attack on Dieppe uh, the year before which was a heavily defended area and was a disaster, helped convince them that the Pas de Calais was not the way to go. Now, the big conversation that's interesting is the British in particular, the Americans too, but mostly the British, carried on a a deception campaign, Operation Fortitude, by which they attempted to convince the Germans that it was coming at the Pas de Calais, that Calais was going to be it, or maybe Norway or Denmark. They had all these fake... You know, uh, and there was a lot of effort and energy poured into that to convince the Germans that it was going to be the Pas de Calais. But really, for more than a year before the landing, it was going to be Normandy, and everybody in the know was aware of that. Okay. No more. Good. I'll repeat your question. Go ahead. Um, you may not know this, but I've often wondered. Uh, were the beaches Utah and Omaha, Utah and Omaha named that before the war? Because they, uh, everything else that's French and British and all that. And I, no, it, no, they weren't. The question is, how did the beaches get their code names? Uh, they were not called Omaha Beach and Utah Beach until we designated them as that as part of our... Se- you know, the military's got to do it. We've got to have a code for everything. You can't just, you know... Um, there were five beaches. Omaha and Utah were the two American beaches. Uh, uh, Sword and Gold were the British beaches, and Juneau was the Canadian beach. So there are five beaches, and they're spread out along the Bay of the Seine, where the Seine River flows into the English Channel, and this big arc, 50 miles wide from end to end. Interestingly enough, the original code names for the American beaches were Uncle and Oboe. And that got changed almost, at the, uh, you know, in the last couple of months. But for a lot of the planning documents for the first several months of this, where, you know, we're going to land on Uncle and then we're going to land on Oboe, somehow, you know, Oboe doesn't quite do it the same way Omaha does. But, uh, yeah. Did the Brits get to name their own beaches? Um, th- no. The Eisenhower was the Supreme Allied Commander, Schaaf. And under him was a ground commander, an air commander, and a naval commander. And they were all British. And then under them were uh, operational group commanders, the Americans and the British, each commanded their own. Um, And collectively, that team named them, the planning team. Actually, it was even Frederick Morgan, uh, before Eisenhower even became Schaaf, who did it. Um, And then he stayed on as a subordinate uh, staff member. So a lot of this was done by staff work. It's not a person, it's a group. Just one more piece to that. Then once they named all those, everybody else referred to them as Utah and Omaha and Gold and all that, right? So that became their own language for those. Uh, yes, and, and that's true of, I mean, Overlord and Neptune and Anvil and Dragoon and, and Shingle and, and all of these, every operation has a code name. Uh, and, and, and all the players learn, learn it. Oh, sure. Oh, it became second, second nature. They talked about it so often. Now, it's not that, you know, Joe Jarhead 
going ashore in Omaha Beach. He may not even know that's Omaha Beach. He was told, get in this ship, get in that boat, go ashore, don't get killed. See if you can take that hill. Uh, that's what he knew. So it's not like he said, I'm going to Omaha Beach. After the fact, he knew, of course, that's where he had been if he was still alive. Well, because the name certainly stuck. Oh, well, sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, Omaha Beach especially. I mean, you hear more about Omaha Beach than any of the others because that's where most of the casualties took place. It was by far the toughest place to come ashore and, and where we suffered the greatest casualties. When did they start the real effort uh, making the Higgins boats? The Higgins, when did they start making the Higgins boats? Uh, uh, Andrew Jackson Higgins, who owned a boatyard in New Orleans, um, and there is still a Higgins boatyard in New Orleans, and the World War II Museum is actually on Higgins Avenue in New Orleans, uh, was making what he called a Eureka boat, a flat-bottom boat for trappers and hunters in the Louisiana swamps uh, in the 19, late 1920s and into the 30s. And the Marine Corps went to him and said, you know, we kind of like these. These would be cool to use. And he said, well, let's have a contract. I'll build some for you and, and so forth. But it got serious really only after uh, the war began. And then the Navy put out a contract for, I think, 1,300. They ended up building more than 12,000 of them uh, during the war. And, of course, it was very profitable for Higgins. But that relationship between Higgins and the Navy was an interesting one. Higgins thought the Navy were a bunch of chumps. Uh, there, there was a moment when uh, they were going to build a small tank carrier called a tank lighter. It ended up being the landing craft, uh, landing craft tank, LCT, um, and Higgins had a design for one, and the Navy Department had its own design. Well, Higgins said, that, that's a stupid design. Well, the Navy said, we're going with our in-house design. And he, just, he could not believe the Navy would be so stupid. One of the quotations I used in my book, and I did this deliberately because I taught for 30 years at the Naval Academy, was Higgins said, you know, at the Naval Academy, they teach things like football, dancing, fencing, stuff like that. But they don't know a goddamn thing about small boat design. Anyway, so I had to put that in there. That's for the Air Force. I did that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're first because he already had one. Go ahead. What maritime counter-operations did the Germans um, attempt at Norway? One of the reasons why in 19... What, what maritime counter-operations did the Germans attempt during the D-Day landings. One of the reasons why a 1943 operation would have been a disaster, almost certainly, and the 1944 operations ended up being a success, was that in that 12-month period, the Allies gained complete command of the air, which they did, and complete command of the sea. The Germans did not launch any, what we would call, deep draft combatants uh, to attack. They did send out uh, Schnellbooten, the fast boats, from Le Havre uh, that attacked early in the morning on June 6th. They sunk a Norwegian uh, destroyer, the Svenner. Uh, they almost got the British command ship. I mean, it went within yards. But, uh, you know, and, and I love imagining this image because the commander of the small boat squadron in Le Havre was ordered, take your boats out there and, and find out. We hear there's rumor that there's something out there. Go look. And, of course, as the, as the mist rises off the dawn, he looks out. Oh, yeah, there's 6,000 ships out here. And then, Everybody fire, fire your torpedoes and then run like hell, which is what they did. That was the only German naval counterattack of the entire operation. There were no U-boat operations? No U-boat operations. No U-boat operations. Again, victory in what has gone down in history as the Battle of the Atlantic against the German U-boats had kept them 
pretty much out of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I actually have a non-D-Day question, if I can. Um, you've written an awful lot of books. <laughs> and I'm just curious, before, uh, of the books you've written before this one, do you have a particular favorite? And, uh, oh. Uh, do I have a favorite of the books that I've written? Um, uh, 27. Um, but that counts edited works. That's kind of cheating, you know. I, uh, single author uh, monographs on a particular subject that I wrote, probably, I guess it's 14, I think, would be the number. Which is, yeah, it's still a lot. I mean, it seems like a lot to me. Um, do I have a favorite? I really liked my Lincoln book. I don't know who in here has read the... Who has read the Lincoln book? Anybody? Lincoln and his admirals. Uh, won the Lincoln Prize, the Berenduce Prize, uh, the Laney Prize, the Lyman Prize, and the Abraham Lincoln Book Award all in the same year. No other book has ever won all those prizes in the same year. It didn't sell all that well. I mean, there are more than 17,000 books on Lincoln. Everybody on Lincoln, you know. But nobody's ever written a book about Lincoln and his relationship to the Navy, and, uh, and, and particularly the Navy's leaders, its admirals. Uh, and, and Lincoln is, to me, an absolutely fascinating, endlessly fascinating personality. Uh, so I, if I had to, if you're going to make me pick, I'll, I'll say Lincoln and his admirals. You, you should all go out and buy it right now. But <laughs> buy this one first. I'm sorry. Anybody else? Are we done? No, no, no. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming. <laughs>